are now listening to Wisdom from North podcast with me, Jannike Einias. Here I will explore topics such as metaphysics, spirituality, personal growth, and in general, how we can create good lives for ourselves. My intention is to find some answers, but perhaps more importantly, finding new questions to ask, because there is always something new to discover in this wonderful universe that we live in. In Wisdom from North, we're passionate about helping you take your spiritual growth to that next level. That's why we are collaborating with some amazing spiritual teachers and partners who offer free webinars and classes. Go to wisdomfromnorth.com forward slash free. Disclaimer. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast belong to the guests and do not necessarily represent the views or positions of Wisdom from North or any entities they may represent. Now, please enjoy the episode. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hi, everybody. A warm welcome to a new podcast episode on Wisdom from North. Today, I'm going to take you to Connecticut, where I met Bonnie McInnini in 2013. And this conversation that you're going to listen to today made a huge impact on me. I interviewed Bonnie in 2013 while I was traveling around the U.S., and the reason I wanted to go to U.S. was especially because I've been studying in New York City and America is dear to my heart. And I had been in New York City while the towers fell. I actually came down a week before as a 21-year-old girl. I think I was 21. And I didn't know anybody. I was totally alone. I was so excited to start to study musical theater and then the towers fell, and it was just horror everywhere. And I remember feeling so helpless, like I felt I couldn't help in any way. It was almost like I was just in the way. Why was I here? I was going to study to become a musical theater artist. It just felt so shallow. 
And here people were dying, around 3,000 people were dying, and I couldn't help. Like me studying there felt so pointless. All I wanted to do is reach out and help, and I didn't know how. And I also remember having this feeling of why, God? You know, why is this happening? This is just horror all over the place. What's the deeper meaning behind this? Now, fast forward many years, I'm home in Norway, and I discover this book that's called Messages, Signs, Visits, and Premonitions from Loved Ones Lost on 9-11. Now, Bonnie McEnany is the author of this book. And after her husband, Eamon, died on September 11th, she couldn't stop thinking about his many accurate premonitions. She also couldn't shake a feeling that Eamon was still communicating with her, sending her signs that he was watching out for his family and friends, assuring her that our loving connections do not end with death. And this sense of Eamon's continued presence in her life challenged her skepticism and propelled her on a journey of spiritual exploration. Now, what I find so particularly interesting is that Eamon and many other people that Bonnie talked to, and she's talking about in this book, knew that they were going to die on 9-11. How is that possible? How can that be? Well, I don't know. But to me, that is a great comfort because it tells me that nothing is meaningless everything has a purpose and that there was a greater meaning behind this tragedy. Now, I'm not going to share anymore. I want you to make up your own opinions and listen yourself. So let's go back to 2013 in a house in Connecticut where I met Bonnie McEnany. Much, much welcome to Wisdom from North, and thank you for inviting thank you. me. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled. This is great. Yeah, and um, this is such a powerful story. And I was also in New York, and I saw it all happened. And it's amazing for me to come to con to be able to connect with you um, because I think this these are important messages in a way, because there are a lot of people who are losing people and you have um, now experienced that there are signs that life does continue. I think a couple of things. First of all, as you said, I didn't believe in any of this kind of thing. Um, and like many people, you have to experience things for yourself to become a believer. But what's most important, what I've learned through the journey of interviewing so many individuals, many of whom are part of this book, is that um, it's very difficult when you lose a loved one to be told, you know, get your get yourself together, do what you can just to move on, you know, let's let's find closure. Um, the English word closure really has no meaning in many languages because how do you just all of a sudden change your direction, say, okay, this person has passed on who I loved, you know, very deeply, and not experience extreme sadness or difficulty trying to overcome, you know, the feelings that you have. Uh, the one thing that I found that was the most helpful to the people that I've spoken to is that when they actually had an experience that led them to believe that perhaps their loved one was still with them, they were still connected, 
it was the most therapeutic thing of any type of therapy that they'd been exposed to. And I think it's it's uh, something that people should not be afraid to talk about and think about in their own lives. So tell me, how did you first notice that your husband knew something that you didn't? Um, it was pretty straightforward. He basically started talking about the fact that he knew he was going to die and it was going to be soon. And he would make comments to me about things that I needed to take care of, et cetera. And actually, I thought that he was just experiencing some form of depression. So I became quite worried, especially the week before 9-11 when, you know, it seemed like every other night he was he was talking more profoundly about the fact that he really didn't think he was going to be here much longer. So, you know, at the time I was worried um, really just about his state of mind. But, you know, of course, reflecting back, he was having what we know is a premonition. Yeah, and there was an incident where you were watching television, wasn't it? And you saw Normandy? Yeah, well, he basically, uh, he was talking about, I think it was the Sunday, the Sunday before the Tuesday. Um, so that would have been September 9th. It was the premiere of Steven Spielberg's Band of Brothers, wonderful miniseries about World War II. And this was uh, the episode where uh, these young boys from Company E were diving out of their planes into Normandy, you know, parachuting down, and obviously were very young and very frightened. And Eamon turned to me and he said, you know, they must have been so afraid because many of them were only 17 years old, but I want you to know that I can handle my death now. And at that point, I thought, oh my God, you know, what is what is going on? And then you know, um, Monday came and Tuesday came. Um, but did you question when he talked like that? Basically, I, I asked him, you know, what what's going on with you? And he really didn't know. He just felt these these feelings and had these thoughts. Um, I didn't. It was extremely confusing for the both of us. I was just increasingly more concerned about what was happening to him. And apparently a lot of people that did die had experienced the same, where people are saying that uh, um, the people who died did talk about these things. Yeah, there were many people that I interviewed. Um, Ruth McCourt, uh, who uh, was on United Airlines 175, she died with her four-year-old daughter, uh, Juliana. Um, she, a week before, was at a funeral, and she had given a eulogy for one of her friends. And um, she was standing with the group, and actually uh, one of her close friends, who was also on a different flight on 9-11, was with her that day. And she said, I, I felt or I feel that something is going to happen, something, you know, something very disturbing is going to happen. Mm -hmm. And the people who were with her, and actually each of the individuals was on a different flight, just coincidentally, mm -hmm. um, they all shared this feeling. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that you could say, well, somebody might be afraid to fly or whatever, but this is different because there was a pattern. Um, it was one of the, the themes that I saw fairly consistently 
across the individuals that I spoke to. Uh, and it seems to me from your book that uh, also people who lost uh, others knew that they were going to die, like they had premonitions or like, um, I don't remember who, but the wife just knew that her husband was going to die before her. And so it seems like when people were very connected in a way. Well, you know, this is all about love. There is nothing stronger than the bond of love. And essentially what all these stories reveal is what we've always known, that even across the life-death divide, love does not waver. You remain connected. Now, the reality is most people think you remain connected because you're always thinking about the person that you lost. Mm. You're deeply saddened. But what all of these people have realized is that they are literally connected to the person that they lost because of the bond of love. And they might not be able to see them, but that they're there. They know, they sense their presence. They have experienced signs. They have, you know, had experiences in general that have led them to, to believe that there'll always be some sort of connection with that person. So how, um, what happened on 9-11? Did, um, how did he leave you in the morning, for instance? Well, that was, that was also, um, you know, it was also very uh, sort of startling because many months prior to 9-11, my husband had also been in the 1993 bombing and had come down 105 flights of stairs in the, in the thick smoke and had some issues with, you know, just breathing out smoke for quite a while. You know, he had just some, some uh, health issues as a result, nothing serious, but But there was a point where he developed a vertigo problem. And I think it had something to do with that experience because it was not too long afterwards where one night he just had the room, the room was spinning. And uh, some people call it, physicians know it as uh, called Meniere's disease. And it's really a label for symptoms. Mm -hmm. So he had um, this difficulty trying to orient himself to the room and literally was crawling on the floor, feeling sick to his stomach. Well, anyway, he had, um, he had another attack a few months later like that, and then periodically he would get these dizzy attacks, and he sort of nicknamed them the whirlies, and it was very um, difficult for him when he had this, this problem. But he hadn't had an attack for over nine months. And the morning of 9-11, he got up like he usually did at five o'clock in the morning because he always took an early train. And he got into the shower and I, I heard the water. And then all of a sudden, I heard him turn the water off and he yelled out, oh my God, I've got the whirlies. Mm -hmm. And I said to him, well, don't go in. You know, because we had this routine where he got up and got dressed and then he went and then I would get dressed and go to work. Mm -hmm. Um, and so he came out and he said, well, I don't know. I said, I said, just don't go in, just call and just, you know, relax. And he, um, thought about it. And then he thought that, yes, he could go in and that's sort of the rest of the story. But I wonder what was that? Hmm. Was that another message? Was that another clue that, or something, some force trying to keep him from, Going, I don't know. Mm. 
but it was extremely unusual for him to have this. So it's a, it's a manifestation and a symptom of the stress he was feeling that he would suddenly have this attack. And the stress goes back to this sentiment about, you know, these thoughts, you know, related to potentially not being alive much longer. Was that the last time you heard from him or? Um, you know, it was a, it was just a bizarre, surreal morning because I was a little bit late going in and I was driving my car and on the highway and I thought, okay, I'm going to call my assistant and just tell her I'm going to be a little late. And she got on the phone and she said, Bonnie, Eamon just called. I didn't have the radio on, which was unusual. She said, Bonnie, Eamon just called and he said, a plane has hit the trade center but it's a small plane. Don't worry. He's on his way out. He just wanted you to know that he loves you and loves the children. So he tried to reach me, but we didn't, we didn't connect. And at that point I turned the radio on. And as the story unfolded, the way I describe it is I think I was driving a hundred miles an hour down the highway. And when I finally got to my office, it was as if I threw my car because I left the door open, I just ran up to the third floor where my office was located. And by then, people had a television out, and, and it was widely known what had happened, that, you know, there was a large plane, and actually a second plane came. Um, but it was the North Tower that was hit first by the American uh, jet, and he was in the North Tower on the 105th floor. And there were... Uh, some time where you didn't know uh, if he was alive or not. And there was, I remember reading in the book that uh, you had a lot of people at your house, I think, or you were at a place and then you you screamed out for, for a sign. Yeah. Um, you know, I think you never want to give up hope when something tragic happens in your family. I think in my, in my heart, I knew probably that, that, something horrible had occurred and I, you know, whatever, but you didn't want to believe that. So, um, I left work with a couple of friends. I came home already. Family was starting to arrive. My friends, Eamon's friends were coming to the house and, uh, we spent the day just trying to get answers. Um, and a couple of friends from the city said, you know, it doesn't look too good, whatever. But the next morning I got up really early and um you know it was just beginning to be light outside and I went out to the front yard and uh since we're we're here in my house now you know you can see and um it was one of those days where it was extremely still there was not a ripple of wind not a breeze and I just yelled out you know, Eamon, please tell us where you are, because we had been trying the entire day to find out. We hadn't heard anything from him or any of his friends. And, uh, you know, maybe a couple of seconds passed, and all of a sudden, one of the trees way down on the left of my driveway started to sway back and forth. And I looked up, and, you know, these little squirrels, we have these little animals, um, I thought maybe it was a bunch of squirrels running around in the tree. And then I saw that it was almost like a river of wind that came and swirled around some of the other trees. And 
it came across the grass. It was almost had borders to it. You could almost see it like some sort of a science fiction movie where they create this effect. And the way I describe it, I was wearing a skirt and it sort of whimsically played with my skirt and then stopped. And I, you know, I tell you, I have never, never had an experience like that before. And I guess I viewed that as the answer to the question, you know. And I think uh, it was another powerful story um, when he went um, with a bird. Yes. Um, in February of 2002, I had been sort of coincidentally at a 9-11 related meeting in a nearby town. And it was a very cold day. It was ice and snow and whatever. Very, very cold, sharp wind blowing. And we were in this little meeting. There were only a few of us in an office. And there was a knock at the door. And it was my pastor from the church I belonged to and um, the head of our police force. And they told me, uh, you know, you see that and you think, oh, my God, what's happened? And they said they had found my husband's remains. And, you know, the, the whole 9-11 experience for most people was very unusual when it came to that because very few people were found early on. I mean, this this was something that in many cases took years and years to really get remains, and some people never did. So, you know, it's a different kind of experience for you. So I left, and um, the, the minister was driving me, and he, you know, we were back in the town, and he turned very sharply into this driveway, and I realized it was the driveway into the one major cemetery we have in our town. And he said to me, you know, you've got to start thinking about this now, you know, and I, I was just sort of in a daze. But right at that moment, and I described the um, the conditions, the weather conditions. This huge bird came out of nowhere and landed in front of our car. And it was what's called a great blue heron, which typically are in warmer climates. You can find them up and down the eastern seaboard of the U.S. But this was very unusual for this huge bird to be in a cemetery in the middle of winter in this kind of environment. And the reason it was also so unusual is because it was the one bird that my husband, my father, and I had a connection with. Um, my parents had a home in Florida, and there was one of these blue herons that used to be out there every morning, and my father had kind of a friendship with it. And one Christmas, my husband bought him a big glass replica of the blue heron. So... For me, it was a sign, I guess. Um, and that's the thing, you know, different things happen to different people. It's how you interpret them. And many people have signs, but they don't realize that's what they are. So uh, tell, uh, if you can tell a little bit about other uh, people's stories, uh, because it seems like there are some... Um, patterns or uh, similar things like dreams does come up a lot that people connect with their beloveds through dreams do you yeah. have any stories you, you would like to tell you know um, 
dreams are are very consistent. Many people feel they've had what's called a visitation um, within a dream, and they all describe it the same way. They're always in color. They're very vivid. In most cases, the person doesn't talk. Um, once in a while, there's a few words exchanged, but, th but it's a consistent kind of uh, visual that they have. And um, in one case, a woman had um, a dream, and she had been dreaming about her husband, but he always had a very solemn expression on his face. And in this case, this particular dream was very different. It was much more real, and he was smiling. And she, after having that dream, not very long afterwards, woke up, and he was sitting right there, still with the smile. Mm. And she knows she was awake. And the very next day, she went down to ground zero, and she was standing in sort of a balcony where she could overlook the grounds. And she noticed in those days, if you remember on television, um, if they found anything, they would put an American flag over what it, you know, if they found a person and they would bring it up and, and the, whoever was there, the firemen, the police, you know, would sort of line in a very respectful way, line these wooden planks that you could use to walk out of the, the, uh, the area. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is that while she was standing there, she noticed that they were bringing somebody up um, with the American flag, et cetera, the way I described it. And later she found out it was her husband. Mm. So the night before she had this dream and she had the visitation with him smiling and the very next day there he was. So that's one example. Yeah, I mean, when I hear stories like that, I feel that there's no coincidence. No, I don't think there's any coincidences either. And I think this is all good. I think it's all positive. Um, you know, it happens to a lot more people than, uh, than we know because people are afraid to talk about their experiences. They think they will be judged in a negative way. And, and um, you know, it's important you know, for your viewers, any, anybody you talk to, to um, let them know it's okay to, to share what they've experienced because what it does is it reinforces for other people that, you know, if they've had something they thought might be a sign or something that maybe it really was. And, you know, don't despair because just because a, a person passes on they may be gone in the sense of our material, physical world that we live in, but they aren't really gone from your life. So how long did it take uh, you uh, to write these, uh, this book? I mean, you have a lot of stories here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I interviewed nearly uh, 200 families and friends of victims, and it took about five years from the beginning because I was working full-time, and... Uh, Many times at night I do the interviews and then I would work uh, transcribing tapes and, and so forth, one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, and then I'd get up and go to work again. So this was not a healthy way to, <laughs> to uh, proceed with this project. So ultimately I, I went full-time on the project and took a couple more years to finish. And then 
Um, I just thought it was really important to document this. And, you know, the, the nice thing is I've gotten so many letters from people from all over the world mm. who've had um, experiences, and they were so glad to know that so many associated with 9-11 shared theirs. Now they felt comfortable sharing their own. Mm. So, you know, yeah. I think it was well worth it. And um, there was a story here about coins. A lot of people have had uh, stories or uh, signs with coins, and you had as well, because yeah. Yeah. you were doubting uh, that you were going to write this book, I think, around 2006, and you were sitting in a restaurant. And yeah, that story just blew me off. Yeah. If you can tell that story. Yeah, well... Um... You know, you may recall when my husband made the comment during the Band of Brothers movie, the, the not the movie, but the uh, the series. It was that that particular episode where 1944, June 6th, D-Day, these boys are diving out of the planes. And that was his last conversation with me telling me, you know, that he knew that he was going to go soon and that he was no longer afraid. And so that 1944 was really pivotal. It was really important uh, from the context of, of all the discussions I had had with him. It was something that I remembered and how um, passionate he was and com compassionate he was, you know, in terms of supporting those young men and what they had to go through, just like anyone in our military today. Um, so I was out to dinner and I really was thinking to myself, this is crazy what I'm doing. And, you know, I, I didn't have a publisher at the time. I just didn't, I, you know, I thought, what, you know, am I, what am I doing, you know, with this? And I was in a, um, in a restaurant that you have to sign, you can't use credit cards or anything. So there's no cash exchanged. And we were actually outside and um, at a table, and we were the last ones to order, and somebody said, we better order, it's getting late, the kitchen's going to close. So the waiters brought menus and gave them to us, and I was talking to somebody on my right, and I opened my menu, and I had just told the story of Band of Brothers mm -hmm. and the whole 1944 conversation. And I looked down, and there was a penny in the middle of my menu, and I... I I, didn't, I could tell it was old, and somebody else saw it, and they said, what is that? I said, it's a penny. And nobody knew. I mean, these waiters were on the other side of the of the floor. You can't just find these old pennies and <laughs> stick them in menus. So they gave me the menu, with with, and I opened it, and here it was, and it was a 1944 penny. So I knew right then and there, okay, you know, I'll continue with the project. I won't, you know, can, I won't be doubting it any longer. Um, that was really profound. Yeah, that is really amazing. How this led uh, you to like question how these things work, or have you gone deeper into it, into spirituality? I mean, how is it possible that things manifest, or how is it possible that um, these people knew they were going to die? Do you have any theory or feeling about that? You know what? I mean, I looked at all sorts of literature. I tried to find a scientific explanation for the premonitions, a scientific explanation for the visitations. So many people have had these visitations. 
I've never had that experience personally, but enough people have, both associated with 9-11 and not, where they've actually seen their loved one. You know, you could use the term ghost. I don't use that term. I just say spirit. But, you know, this has been happening for centuries. And, you know, there are people who doubt and there are people who believe. The difference here is there's nothing scary about the experiences these people have had. It's something that's really a wonderful, wonderful thing for them. So there's a point where you have to say, okay, do we have to understand everything? Because you could spend your entire human life trying to figure this out and get nowhere because there are so many things that we don't understand and it's okay just to say we don't understand it, but it's a good thing. So it's your choice whether to accept it as valid or not. And that's the other thing that, you know, when I wrote the book, it wasn't meant to be a doctrine that I wanted everybody to start believing. It was really just a group of stories reflecting experiences that helped these people get through what otherwise would be, and I don't want to take away from it, what otherwise would be an extremely challenging thing. Mm -hmm. Grief is challenging no matter what. But these experiences, as I said earlier, helped the individuals process what had happened to them and maybe helped make it a little bit easier. Um, so I don't want anyone to believe anything that they don't. That's not the intent. You know, it's just something that you can reflect on and make up your own mind, really. And you're working with this full time now, don't you? Uh, you're um, on the board of the voice. Well, of that's, that's very different. Okay. I am on the board of an organization called Voices of September 11th, mm -hmm. and they have been, um, you know, they're probably the largest family advocacy group uh, working with uh, victims of 9-11, all, all different types, not just the families, but also the, uh, the rescue workers, et cetera. And, and um, they have developed mainly from a social work standpoint, understanding the psychology of what happens when you go through something like this, they've developed tremendous best practices that they can now utilize to help individuals associated with other disasters as they occur. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, we will always remember 9-11, but it's time to focus on others if we can be helpful based on the experiences we've had. So that is really the, the tra transition uh, for the group. They're still supporting the 9-11 families, but uh, also others that could benefit from their knowledge. So is there anything you want to um, say to other people who have lost um, loved ones? I know we had a tragic uh, accident in, in Norway or incident in Norway where uh, 88 youth lost their lives. And, yeah. And I just want to say that this book is also in Norwegian. That's where I found it, actually. It's called Budskap. And it's really worth uh, while reading. It gives you so much hope, and there are so many stories here. Um, is there, I guess, it's, it's impossible to say advice, but is there anything you can say to those who have lost people recently, since you've been through it, that can help, maybe, or that can, how to deal with grief? Yes, um, and this is just my personal belief. But I do believe that when you lose a loved one, they are not gone forever. Mm 
I do believe that you remain connected to them. So I would say to anybody who's lost someone, you know, you are faced with unimaginable challenges that relate just to you because of your relationship with the individual. And there's so many complexities related to this. But don't be afraid to talk about experiences if something happens that makes you think, could that have been, you know, a, a sign or a message from the person you lost? It's, it's okay to talk about these things because once you do, it doesn't matter what culture you're from. I've found sort of a universal understanding of this everywhere I've traveled. And because the spiritual world sees no color, sees no culture, the spiritual world is what it is. And it's a positive thing. When you lose a loved one, they are there to help you, to give you support in many, many different ways that you're not even aware of. If you just are open to it, if you don't believe in this kind of thing, that's fine too. But I think when you're struggling with grief, it's much easier to process what happened and to move on without the feeling that the person is gone forever. That is a very difficult concept for the human mind to wrap itself around. So I think that's really the intent of the book, to provide enough examples, credible examples, to allow someone else to say, could this be happening in my own life? And if it is, how wonderful. Thank you so much, Bonnie. Oh, you're very welcome. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you want to become more who you are and live in alignment with your soul's purpose and explore a deeper meaning with your life, then you are most welcome to join Wisdom from North membership. If you want to go deeper, you can find all our English online courses and programs at wisdomfromnorth.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook and YouTube just by searching for Wisdom from North. Until the next episode, much light from here.